Today on the Almond Journey podcast. Just do the math on the cost of chemicals and the cost of diesel and the cost of equipment and the increase of yield that I have because I'm not losing hardly any to enable orange worm and it's a no-brainer. Maxwell grower Leon Etchpair shares his experiences with naval orange worm mating disruption and new irrigation technology. Welcome to another episode of the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On this show, we discover how growers and handlers and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I'm traveling up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their communities, and ultimately advance the almond industry. Today's episode takes us north on I-5 up to Maxwell, California, about halfway between Sacramento and Redding. There we'll sit down with fourth-generation farmer Leon Etchpair. Leon is a partner in Emerald Farms, which farms about 5,000 acres of almonds and walnuts. He's got some great experiences to share about how they're adopting mating disruption technology for naval orange worm and how he's been using soil probes and variable rate irrigation. First, though, I asked Leon if he'd share what led him back to the family farming operation after college. Went away to college, went to San Luis Obispo for a couple of years, ended up graduating from Fresno State with a plant science degree. And then I uh, was like ready to come back and be a farmer. And, at, you know, 23 years old, I think is uh, how old I was when I graduated. And my dad's like, oh, no, you don't get to come back here. You got to go get some real world experience. And I'm like, I have my PCA license, you know, I I have this plant science degree, like, why would I not come back here and just start? And he's like, because that's not how I'm going to let this happen. So Leon started working in the greenhouse and nursery plant industry for a few years, then started his own company building outdoor living spaces for residential homes in Sacramento. Then about 11 years ago, his dad called and asked if he'd still like to come back to the farm. It was during the recession and things weren't very good for my company. And he's like, I'm getting to that age where I need to start thinking about the future. What would you like to do? And I'm like, well, why don't I give it a shot? And so I still lived in Sacramento and commuted up to Maxwell every day for about a year and a half. And then decided that uh, that commute was not worth, you know, three hours out of my day. So we moved up to Maxwell about 10 years ago. And I've lived in this area ever since. Leon's father had planted their first almonds back in 1997 on their farm that had been focused on processing tomatoes, rice, and other row crops at the time. But the family farming legacy goes back even a couple of generations before then. My uh, great-grandma and great-grandfather came from Spain. They immigrated here, and they actually met in Reno. Uh, My grandfather came as an indentured servant to uh, be a sheep herder. So then my great-grandfather started farming sheep in Maxwell in the late 1800s, I think. And then my grandfather uh, and his brothers farmed sheep, but then they started farming rice. And then my dad, um, when he got out of college, he came back here and decided that he wanted to do something else besides rice. So he started planting row crops, but mainly vegetable seeds. And so that's how we kind of got into row crops and then grow crops grew in their percentage and rice decreased. And then, you know, in the mid nineties, 
started growing trees and, and the row crop started decreasing and the tree started increasing and, you know, you just kind of like evolve. And since I've been back, it's more concentrating on vertical integration of the orchard crops and, you know, expanding and planting more orchards and all that kind of stuff. When you hear Leon there talk about concentrating on vertical integration, he's talking about Wellnut Farms, which is a brand he developed to manufacture and market different flavors of plant-based butters, which he says has been an enjoyable journey, but has certainly presented its own unique challenges. Well, you know, you, you look at, at anything and you're like, okay, so how can I be more profitable? And with the way that roller coaster is of nut prices, trying to look at something that is a little bit more sustainable that I can control a little bit more. And some years were profitable, some years were not. So that could hopefully help me, you know, make profit in years I don't make profit. Um, so then, of course, I decided to go straight to having a value added brand. And so I started a company called Walnut Farms, which is a line of walnut butters. So we built a nut butter kind of roasting and uh, manufacturing line in a hurry. And uh, within a few months, we were making our own walnut butter. And now we uh, also make almond butters and pistachio butters and cashew butters and all sorts of different things for a lot of other brands as well. Walnut Farms manufactures the products right there in Maxwell, where Leon also has a walnut holer dryer but they still rely on outside partners for their almond holing, shelling, and processing. This is just one example of how Leon and the team at Emerald Farms are thinking about the future and embracing new ways of doing things. That theme is going to carry through in the balance of our conversation here about navel orange worm and irrigation, starting with the journey that he's been on the past five years or so to implement mating disruption. In general, I try to look at new technologies all the time and see if we can implement them and make our operation more efficient. With mating disruption, I think my PCA at the time said, why don't you try this? And I'm like, okay, we'll uh, try it in a small orchard. I think it was a 150 acre block that was kind of like separated. It started off um, for coddling moth in two organic fields. And we didn't have any coddling moth issues that year. And I was like, huh, okay. Um, so we expanded that to like, I think 400 acres the next year. And, you know, usually I'm doing two to three coddling moss sprays a year. And then we didn't have to do a coddling moss spray and we had very little coddling moth damage. So the next year I put coddling moth puffers everywhere. Then somebody had mentioned, well, we also have navel orange worm for almonds. So I kind of did the same thing. Started with a, you know, a couple hundred acre block and just expanded it. Our spray program, you know, in some of the really bad worm years, we were spraying like three to five times. And for one, that's a lot of labor. It's a lot of chemicals. And with all that is a lot of cost. This year, I sprayed once. At our worst, when we were spraying, I had some fields that were in the, in the low teens uh, with insect damage. And obviously, if you know, you do the math on uh, 25 to 3,000 pounds and you're losing 12% of it to worms, it doesn't take long to figure out that the cost of mating disruption is really, really worth it. Last year, um, my average was under a half a percent of insect damage. And I did a border spray last year and I did one whole split spray for 
naval orange worm. So, you know, you just do the math on the cost of chemicals and the cost of diesel and the cost of equipment. And, you know, then the increase of yield that I have because I'm not losing hardly any to naval orange worm and it's a no brainer. So hopefully, uh, you know, uh, more people take on mating disruption because if my neighbors use mating disruption, I'm going to have a lot less border issues. I still do a border spray pretty much around the entire ranch to try to mitigate those issues. But, you know, that's minimal. That's incredible. So how does that compare with what you would have expected back when you were first trying it out? You know, how does it compare with what your expectations were? Uh, far, far exceeded my expectations. Even if I cut it by half or by 20%, I figured that I was going to win. But going from, I think that worst year, I averaged 8% insect damage with some fields being in the low teens. And then two years later, I'm down to a half a percent and I'm doing, you know, a quarter of the sprays. It's just, yeah, I, I mean, it's it way more than exceeded my expectations. We don't need to get into like the specific dollars and cents, but to give people an idea you know, the cost of the mating disruption technology versus the cost of one spray. Can um, we compare it, those two? Mating disruption is about, based on last year's numbers, was uh, one and a half to two sprays for me, for my cost. That doesn't include, you know, loss of crop because of the insect. Uh, so, you know, if you look at it from uh, just a pure cost standpoint, even if I'm, I'm spraying once and I sprayed four times before, and, you know, there, there's three sprays I'm not spraying, and half of that is the cost of the mating disruption. Now, fast forward to this year, and diesel prices have gone up dramatically, and labor costs are going up, and, you know, just tractors are more expensive if you can even get them. So I have not done the numbers for this year to figure out what the ROI is, but it's going to be significantly more than last year. Yeah. I mean, you could just compare it with sprays alone, you know, for you and you'd be money ahead. And then all of the reduction in damage is just bonus <laughs> and it's, it's significant. Well, yeah, absolutely. And it's also, we still do a lot of mummy removal, you know, in the fall and winter, but we don't have to be as diligent because the insects are just not out there. Instead of sending crews out, I send the shakers through what I can get done with the shakers to reduce mummies is what I do. And then the hand labor pulling mummies out of the trees is significantly less. Fantastic. And how many of those puffers do you need to put out in a block? One per acre. One per acre. Okay. How's it's it's the, significant. Yeah, that's a lot of them. How is the maintenance on that? You know, what, what gives you the confidence that it's going well, you know, sort of in the moment? When we first started it, we used a company that uh, we had to do all the installation, you know, every year and their products weren't, I mean, they were recyclable, I guess, but you couldn't use them from year to year. So I just felt like there's this huge amount of waste at that time I was using, I don't know, like a thousand acres or 1500 acres. And so I had 1500 of these metal cans and plastic units, and then all the batteries and it just wasn't a sustainable model. And my guys every spring had to go and put them up and every fall had to take them down. Now we use a company that they do everything. They put them up, they maintain them, they come and put fresh cans in them. 
new batteries if they need new batteries, and they reuse the majority of them every year. So I guess cost-wise, it costs a little bit more to have them handle all of it. But from a sustainability and ensuring that the product works and is put up correctly, it's again, it's a no-brainer. I don't have to deal with it. The one thing with tech and agriculture is those two things, they don't like to work well together. You have, you know, tractors and drivers that try to destroy things constantly. And you've got the elements, you got heat and wind and rain and freeze and, you know, all these things that happen to all this tech that is out in the elements year round. And it inevitably fails. I mean, I would have to have a staff of like five people just to keep the tech alive. And, you know, these guys, they are experts at their product. They know what they need to do to keep it working. And, you know, the guys that have the moisture probes that come and they do that, they're the experts there. I'm not the expert at all that stuff. I just want it to work. So you need to make it as easy on yourself as possible. I tried to, you know, cut corners and be a little bit cheaper and do it myself with all sorts of, you know, pump controls and all that kind of stuff. And in the end, I scrapped all that, wasted all that money. And I'm hiring companies to come in, redo it, and they just handle it. That makes sense. Well, you mentioned also soil moisture probes. So maybe talk about technology as it relates to water, which has been, you know, the hot topic. Well, it always is the hot topic, but especially this year. What have you been able to do that's worked well for you when it comes to water use efficiency and irrigation? Um, well, you know, the water saga in California just never ends. Uh, for farmers, I don't think it's always been a, a concern. And it will always be a concern. And regardless of how much water we have available to us, why would you want to waste it? You know, it's a precious resource. We get a limited supply of it. So do your best to use it right. And you can do that with, with technology, with moisture probes and pressure bombs and all these tools we have now you can be an even better steward of the land. Farmers always want to be the best steward of the land. Like the land is what's creating their life and the crop and food pays their bills. So you want to take care of it as much as you can. Part of that is not over irrigating and not under irrigating because you want to make the you know most efficient use of, of every acre of ground. So you want to water correctly. Moisture probes really help with that. We look at them a lot less today than we did when we installed them mainly because it helped us be better irrigators and understand our soil a lot better because you know the guy goes out and looks and he's like oh yep there's water puddling on top oh we're good but doesn't really go and dig down to three or four feet and go, okay, well maybe we should irrigate 12 hours on 12 hours off or you know, eight hour sets or whatever, so that you can get the water penetration down. Now that we kind of have that figured out, we just check the sensors just to make sure that everything's still all good. Do we need to add more gypsum to help with water penetration and whatnot? But those things like to die a lot. You're sticking electronics down a tube in the ground with lots of moisture. And then you've got tractors and implements that like to run them over and grab wires and rip them out. And they're a maintenance nightmare. 
Well, as you think about kind of what's next when it comes to to water use efficiency, obviously that's giving you a lot of the data you need to make sure you're putting the right amount on. Is is there a next step that you're looking at currently that you might go from here? We just installed a 500 acre system, um, a variable rate, which was our first variable rate system. Most of our soils have been pretty homogeneous on a per field basis. So there was really not a need for variable rate, but this project has 28 different soil types on 500 acres. And it, you know, goes from a loam to gravel. So, and everything in between. Uh, So there was really no way of doing the traditional irrigation system. So, you know, that's got lots of probes. Some of the uh, sections are down to an acre and a half that we, you know, we can segregate from everything else. And, you know, that acre and a half uh, might be, actually, I think it is uh, pretty gravelly. And so that is going to be, you know, a few hours on, a few hours off, a few hours on. And it might irrigate for the same 24 hours that one of the clay loams over here irrigates, but it's going to be doing it in three on, three off so that we just don't lose the water. So every zone has its own valve, basically, and its own moisture sensor or sensors, probably depending on how large it is. That is correct. Very interesting. And then those those valves are automated. I mean, they'd have to be. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine running around that? That, uh, <laughs> no. that has like 30 something valves on that ranch. And so trying to run around and play with 30 something valves when you're trying to irrigate and you're like, oh, okay, three hours and you got to run over here and turn this one off. And <laughs> I'd have to have an army of guys just standing there um, at each valve. Yeah, valve turner honor would be a job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a a good job description. (laughs) Okay, no, that's really interesting. And with something like that, how do you assess the return you're going to get on that investment? That's a really complicated equation (laughs) for so many different zones. Like, how, how do you assess, like, is this worth it? I can't answer that question for you. We went on kind of a leap of faith with that one. Being that yes, the the cost was fifteen or twenty percent more than a traditional system, but because of the variability, it wasn't really an option. And planting on that soil without this harvest, you would have you know the gravelly stuff that would be ready, and three weeks later, the stuff on the clay would be ready. So just even harvest would be really challenging fertigation would be challenging. Irrigation would be challenging. So that ranch, I don't think I would have planted into trees if we didn't have this. So if you look from a cost perspective, that wouldn't be in existence, at least under my management, without making that investment. Gotcha. Yeah. Are you using automation in your irrigation elsewhere or just kind of for this variable rate project? Um, for the our home ranch, which is a lot of contiguous acres, we don't have a whole lot of automation. We do have some automation for our lift pumps and whatnot so that for frost protection, uh, we can get water charged to all the booster pumps without having people have to come out here. So, you know, you get frost alerts and, and you can turn those on because it takes about an hour and a half to two hours to charge all the ditches and get everything where it needs to go. So I would have all my guys coming out here and standing around for two hours while they wait. So this gives us, you know, those guys, the ability to sleep in a little bit more and uh, then we can turn on the frost protection water at the appropriate time. 
we have a few ranches that are a little ways away from our our home ranch here and they, you know they have multiple sets like we have 350 acres of walnuts that it's four sets and so somebody would have to go drive 20 miles just to go switch a valve so that's automated so you just basically start the set it runs you know this set for this many hours then it just keeps going it starts the pumps up it regulates pressures and you can select if you want district water or if you want to use well water. And if it's this many acres, these two pumps turn on. If it's this many acres, only one pump turns on, or maybe it's a larger pump, you know, for this section. So from a logistical standpoint, that saves us a lot of money in just driving and, and labor. Right. Anything else we didn't get to? I know we covered a lot of ground, but either we didn't talk about it at all that you wanted to mention or that we maybe touched on but didn't go deep enough into. You know, the, the only thing that I think is, is really important is us as farmers, we do a really bad job of marketing ourselves and what we do. The world and, and the consumer really doesn't understand our trials and tribulations and the stuff we have to deal with every day. And we do it, yes, to make a living. And we all work so that we can live the life we want to live. But farming, we're doing it to feed people. And we need to do a better job as an industry getting out there why we do what we do, our stories, the challenges we face so that when the voters are voting for certain people, those people think about farming because we're getting so far away from our food and it just comes from the grocery store that if we keep going down the road we're on, we're not going to have California agriculture, you know, definitely not as we know it today. And there's going to be more and more products that are purchased from other countries. And do we really want to depend on food from other countries to sustain life here in the United States? Like we already depend on countries for pretty much everything else. Why do we want to do that with food? And we're headed there real quick. Well, a good thought-provoking message to cap off a really insightful conversation. Thank you so much to Leon Etchpair for taking the time to be on today's show. The results he's seen by including mating disruption into his pest management strategy are really compelling. So that's what we're going to focus on in today's ABC Update. Mating disruption can be a very important piece, as you just heard, in an overall integrated pest management approach to naval orange worm management. Research supported by the Almond Board of California has led to a number of resources for growers to learn more about this technology. Here to share about those resources is Drew Walter, Pest Management Senior Specialist at the Almond Board. So Naval Orange Worm Research at the Almond Board really has been a four-decade-long journey Mating disruption is one piece where I think we finally got to the point of being commercially viable in the 90s. And now we have four main companies in that space that provide tools to our growers. Now, these can all be tailored in different ways and they fit based off of the grower's needs. So mating disruption, again, is just one piece of the entire IPM program for Naval Orange Worm. Other pieces are going to include things like orchard sanitation, monitoring and trapping and spraying as needed. 
Drew says that an integrated approach is really essential, especially as environmental conditions are allowing for more and more flights of the pest throughout the year. One of the big things that we do start to see is with these warmer, dry conditions that we're getting with drought, and I'd say with the change in climate in California, you're getting more and more flights of navel orange worms. So what might have been three to four flights, you're now seeing four to five flights. So increased pressure that aren't just affecting your non-parels, but your back-end pollinizers or your late harvested varieties. So it's really kind of more of an issue of keeping those units up into the season even further than I think most folks used to in the past. They used to think harvest is done. I'm going to go through and start removing some of those units. I think a common practice we're going to start to see is leave those units in your orchard throughout the dormant season as well. At that point, anything that's left in the cans in terms of aerosols or the meso strips, you're going to be able to actually extend that mating disruption for those later varieties and also for any navel orange worm that's lingering in your orchard even after harvest. For anyone who might be interested in learning more about mating disruption, the Almond Board does have resources available. The Almond Board actually has a YouTube channel with two great videos where we collaborated with UC Cooperative Extension's David Havlin where we produce some videos to kind of give you a brief overview and a non-biased approach to looking at mating disruption tools for navel orange worm. Then there's a second video for monitoring tools for navel orange worms. So again, this kind of goes over the units that are available. We also have a resource out on almonds.com that will be posted soon that kind of goes over the cost per unit, the type of unit, again, whether this is an active aerosol, variable rate dispenser, or the passive meso strips. Then we get into also whether this is installed and maintained by growers versus vendor. Again, really trying to keep this a non-biased, just information that a grower would want to use when making the decision to apply this technology. But again, YouTube, our Almond channel, you're going to have to find those two videos. And then under the grower tools section on almonds.com, we will have that non-biased resource up there soon. Thank you very much to Drew Walter for providing today's ABC update. To hear more about almond industry best management practices in general, as well as innovative research and strategic market development, make sure you join us at the Almond Conference, which returns to Sacramento December 7th through 9th. It will be back in person at the newly renovated Safe Credit Union Convention Center. So go immediately to almonds.com forward slash conference to register, book your hotels, and stay up to date with all the latest Almond Conference information. You'll be able to see Drew there, I'm sure, as well as so many of the other people you've heard from here on this show. We believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own, of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of industry leaders like Leon Etchpair may have sparked a connection or idea that you can use in your own journey. That's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And please pass it along to others in the industry, if you don't mind, so we can all share in this almond journey together. Music.